Carrying huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite to the conditions he won in Lords. Rain so close. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time. Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. During my racing years and even now, I take my health and nutrition pretty seriously, I must say. It was so difficult though to stick to a routine and to remember to take all those necessary supplements. Then I found AG1. I'm so excited to partner with them personally and for this podcast. I actually started taking AG1 long before this partnership even came about. Now you might ask, what is this stuff? Think of AG1 as your all-in-one health insurance. I know I do. I have never been one for taking a million different supplements or vitamins. So this is the perfect all-in-one solution. Honestly, I actually look forward to taking it. I do it first thing in the morning. I feel more alert and focused and I know I'm taking care of my body and health. I feel energized to get my day going. Covering my nutritional basis for the day literally couldn't be easier and that's why I trust AG1. I just mix one small scoop with water and drink it first thing each morning as I said and then I'm done. So check this out. With that one scoop of AG1 I've been talking about, you're absorbing, listen to this, 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced ingredients, probiotics and adaptogens to help start your day right. This is a special blend of ingredients that supports your gut health, nervous system, immune system recovery and helps enhance your focus. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and none of that nasty chemical artificial anything, all while still tasting good. Now let's all be honest with each other. We all know we don't eat enough vegetables or consume the healthiest meals some of the time, especially when we get busy. We all want something quick and easy which will help us in life. AG1 supports better sleep quality recovery, mental clarity and alertness. Now, I don't care what you do in life. I think we can all agree this is super important. AG1 is trusted by so many professional athletes and health experts. If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com forward slash moving the needle. That's again drinkag1.com forward slash moving the needle to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. The link will be in the show notes as well. Thanks to our episode sponsor ODI. Now I've been on these and only these grips for well over 20 years. How cool is that? I clearly remember we couldn't even get them in South Africa back in the day when I was a junior. The minute I got my hands on a pair of these lock-on grips, I never looked back. They are the original lock-on. They have an incredible range of options out there. But I want to tell you a little bit about something new they're offering. Drawing on over 40 years of experience of producing performance-driven grips and feedback from their extensive network of top riders across the globe, the Reflex Grip have been engineered to reduce impacts and vibration being passed onto the rider's hands to allow you to ride more with less pain and fatigue. Reflex grips are the latest innovation in impact dampening to keep you riding longer and farther as they've been specifically engineered to reduce vibration, like having suspension-free hands without compromising control. They use their propriety grip compound with its superior impact damping properties and couple this with responsive ribbed padding that actively flexes under your hands to reduce impacts and torsional forces. Now those are some fancy words, but let me tell you, this just really is going to help you with less fatigue, less pain, you're gonna be able to ride longer. So what's not to like about that? 
Not to mention their version 2.1 lock-on grip system gives you the most reliable, slip-free grip performance available. Hey, if you want to learn more, head over to odigrips.com or pop into your nearest retailer. All right, welcome back, guys. This is Moving Needle Podcast. And uh, thanks for the messages, the reviews. This, You know, you guys are subscribing. It's been actually quite an honor. And uh, what is more of an honor, I have an absolute legend in the world of mountain biking. I went to look at the notes. Listen to this. Sick Mick has raced 105 UCI Downhill World Cups, 18 world champs, and stepped on the podium 20 times. And then my notes kind of stopped going because we were meant to do this back in September 2021. However... That was when he was threatening to retire for the second time. But he decided not to, so he's gonna, he didn't finish his retirement. I didn't finish the notes, and that's why we're going to sit down. <laughs> Sick Mick Hanna. Finally, how are we doing, man? Yeah, I'm great, thanks. Yeah, still here in the middle of the Dolomites in Italy, hanging out with old buddies. Yeah, and even last night you were talking about maybe Masters World Champs and getting some of the gang back together. But I said, what about you? He said, no, I've got points and I'm not done racing. So you're 40, <laughs> must be turning 41 now? If no. Greg's turning 42? I turned 40 this year in November. Greg's oh, two coming. years older than me. Oh, yeah. Greg's two years older. So, yeah, this year I'm 40. Actually had an interesting moment at Sea Otter Classic earlier this year. I was um, able to win the downhill and I crossed the line and the announcer said, 40-year-old Michael Hanna takes the win. And I was like... Yeah, that's the first time I've heard that. <laughs> but yeah, it was really cool. Just it's, I'm just loving it, loving riding my bike. And uh, this, you know, you threatened to retire, mm-hmm. but clearly an awesome opportunity came. Were you clearly internally not ready to actually retire the second time? Which we'll get to the mm-hmm. first one later. Yeah, we're now in the present, and you're back mm-hmm. racing for Yeti on, on the e-bikes, doing testing, developing like. Mm-hmm. How do you keep going and were you not clearly ready to retire? Yeah, that's an, obviously an interesting question. We, and my wife and I, we kind of just both felt like it was time for a change and um, made the decision to retire from World Cup downhill racing. And I didn't have a plan actually for what, what was after that. Um, I knew I was done with where I was at and... I was excited about e-bikes generally. I wanted to be in the mountain bike industry because I just love it and I've got so many long-term good friends, you know, so it's kind of like a family. But, yeah, then I spoke to Damien Smith. He, we were actually just at a Halloween party and happened to be in the same place and we're catching up, kind of old friends, and he said, you'd be perfect for this e-bike program that Yeti and Shimano were putting together, so... I was like, I guess, yeah, (laughs) sounds great. I want to be involved with e-bikes. First thing I actually said was you should go find somebody smaller. (laughs) I'm one of the big guys or the big guy on the circuit. And, um, yeah, I didn't know much about the e-bike enduro racing at that point, clearly, because it seems like we're more competitive than I expected. But it was that random that you were at a Halloween party, you... We were texting a bit. It didn't even seem mm. that you were putting your feelers out yet, it seemed like. You'd sort of made the mm. decision, okay, so you're not going to do downhill. Yeah. Now it's like, okay, how do I fit into the industry? And we've had a few chats mm. about that. Um, so I can relate on that side. 
but then he just kind of sees you there randomly and it probably pops into his mind, mm. hang on, you say you're retiring, but it's that yeah, random? And it really... And talks start like quite soon after that? How does it go down? It really was that random because I was taking the time to, as you say, reach out and like I reached out to yourself and a few other close friends within the industry just to get advice about what to do, what opportunities were in the industry and also just feedback on who I am and what makes sense for me to pursue from people that have known me and from friends and competitors and uh, sponsors and people like that. So I was just going through that process and um, one of Kenda actually, a long time, long time sponsor, they were kind of like, we're, we're tying up our budgets, like you need to come up with a plan. And I was like, I, I don't know what I want to do. I'm sorry. Like, and then, yeah, Halloween obviously is the end of October. It's quite late to be like not to not have a plan for the following year. And yeah, Damien walked into the party and I was like, oh, no way, there's Damien. And just we were just chatting away and catching up on what each other are up to. And he was like, oh, you should ride an e-bike for us. And I kind of just laughed it off. <laughs> and yeah, and then we had a proper meeting a couple of days later. And yeah, then I went and met with Shimano. Um, maybe a week later or something there was a, a bike festival on not too far away from home that I went and met with Joe and yeah and now we're two years later and and like yeah Shimano's putting a huge effort in yet he's obviously always on the forefront of development and progress in the bike industry and um, we're getting good results and yeah it's just really fun the team's amazing having the support that Yeti offers and, and being sur surrounded by people like Damien who's been with Yeti for 20 years and Richie Rude and Jared Graves and then everybody back in the office, the engineering team are super passionate and talented and, and the owners of Yeti are super passionate about racing and bikes and, and winning and it's just it's a really fun environment to be a part of. Yeah, it kind of makes me think, <clears throat> excuse me, that... <clears throat> excuse that like you needed some sort of change you know like mm -hmm. yeah you walk away from downhill it's kind of similar to sam like it seems like if you do something for so long at this high level you know testing's kind of similar for downhill things mm -hmm. like that like has it really re-energized you to sort of like a second lease on potentially a career here that could last a few more years into your 40s mm -hmm. yeah well that's that way yeah that's definitely an accurate observation that last year or two in downhill i was loving racing and as always loving hanging out with everybody and and i was my results were getting better and better because i had a couple of hard years and um all that was going in a good direction but it just felt like i was doing the same thing over and over and over again and um yeah i just i don't know i don't want to just show up to show up really like what drives all of us to be high-level athletes is progress and pursuing goals and yeah just kind of yeah I don't know not I wouldn't have said that I felt stuck in a rut back then but as I reflect on it and and I'm seeing and feeling what's going on now I it was just being stuck in a rut really and it took stepping out of that which was scary it was scary to leave something that you're so passionate about and 
It is and daunting, then it's just, yeah? Yeah. And that was part of the conversation I had with you too and, and a few other people is like there's so much opportunity out there and you just kind of like open yourself up to it and anything can happen, you know? Yeah, it's just stepping into something you haven't mm-hmm. done is super uncomfortable and that's where the anxiety comes from. Mm-hmm. But now I can reflect six, seven years in, it's technically the best decision I could have made. It Mm. got forced on me and maybe, you know, sometimes contracts don't come your way or you're burnt out and it helps you make a decision. Mm. It's certainly daunting. It takes you a few years to realize, oh, I don't have to race a bike down the hill for three minutes to earn a living. Mm -hmm. There actually are other things, but you probably knew that from having kids in a family, like there are bigger things out there. But Mm -hmm. To me, you seem just so competitive in a good way. Like racing is all you know, but also what you want to do. Like mm-hmm. for me, I don't really want to go racing anymore. But for you, you seem like you kind mm-hmm. of need it. Has it just been like that since you were a kid? Yeah, that's an interesting thing. Like I didn't, at the end of when I was focused on downhill racing, I didn't feel, I don't feel like I need it for sure. And I'm not sure if that's an accurate thing to say or not, but I don't feel like I need the competition. We kind of joke with myself and Kim, my wife, because anytime we're playing games or anything, like she's so insanely competitive and <laughs> I'm the one that's going like, oh, whatever, you know. <laughs> and, yeah, but, but is that because you've like achieved success I'm, in something else? Because sometimes I'm the same. I'm like, this pool game doesn't actually matter. Yeah. You know, and some people are just so into it. I'm like, I'm not going to lose a friendship over yeah. a pool game or a relationship yeah. over, like, winning. Yeah, there's some of that could be true for sure. But there's there's certainly some athletes I have in mind that are insanely competitive at everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right down to who can figure out how much everyone owes at dinner the quickest. Like, everything is, that is competitive? Everything's else? competitive, yeah. <laughs> but, like... Yeah, I don't, as you say, I've had, I've raced for like 33 years now in my life and had a lot of wins and losses and I feel like that kind of side, for sure when I was younger I was super competitive and it drove me a lot. Now, I love the development of the product, being able to work with Yeti and Shimano and they're putting so much in behind the scenes and specifically on an e-bike there's so many so many new things to learn that like we've got automatic shifting and all this as well as the drive unit they're trying to just figure out what it is we need like we don't know what we don't know and that's that's a really interesting process to be going through and to have the backing behind it to just explore possibilities is amazing and then being able to still be competitive on the racetrack and using all that stuff and all the work we've done behind the scenes. And last year I was kind of did a lot of that testing and development myself, which was pretty scary because you like, you kind of have your own echo chamber going on sometimes. And some days you just like, I think this is what I want, but I'd love to have someone beside me to help. And which thankfully now this year, I've got a great teammate in Ryan Gilchrist who's been really helpful in that process but yeah all that work and being able to act to try it out on the racetrack myself and and be competitive enough to do that that that's pretty exciting as well so how does that look what do you how much are you mixing like data and timing 
versus feel. You know, um, some of these things, it's tough to quantify even on paper. Yeah. But you have so much experience, sometimes feel can be an accurate representation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um, another great question. That And that feel aspect to, is, that's what kind of gives me anxiety sometimes. <laughs> some days you feel great and you're like, yeah, this is exactly what I needed and what it, this is what it's doing. And other times you're kind of like, well, I think this is what I need or, and that, yeah, the feel aspect to it is like can feel like a bit of a dark art sometimes. But that yeah. that experience is really helpful enough, and that's something that I've taken the time to actually kind of learn and train myself over the last ten years or so. Had the opportunity to work with Arthur Quet, who's like an amazing engineer, yeah, suspension engineer. Yeah, yeah, he's a, yeah, he was incredible. Like, yeah, and he helped. Like, do you feel sometimes? If you're comfortable in your own skin, you can come down and say, you know what, I don't feel the difference. Mm-hmm. Like that's actually better for an yeah. engineer to hear than a wishy-washy or just a made-up thing so that you feel like you're adding value. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a tough thing. I think when you're young, you, you want to just always give input. But if you say, hey, I don't feel this change, even mm-hmm. though you might have made one, yeah, that might be more beneficial to them than you think. Yeah, and you feel the pressure to give that feedback. And that is like you hit the nail on the head. It's super hard some days to come back and be like, I don't feel a difference. Yeah, we've just done five or, hours of testing. Or also, <laughs> yeah. the difference. Yeah, and you got all these engineers, engineers like. Flown out from Japan. Yeah, that's a lot yeah. of pressure. Or they brought out this cool new thing or something that's also quite tough is they've brought a new, something new that you've asked for and you're like, oh, that actually doesn't work, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, and you've like just you're wasted like, a month. In your month. mind, you're like, this is shit, but <laughs> just, I've got to be PC about this because, yeah, they've put how much effort in yeah. for a goal for it to be better. And yeah. It honestly might not be better. Yeah, and being okay. And I I always go back to a crash sometimes, and that's okay. <laughs> like when you're doing down, when you're trying to go as fast as you can, sometimes you make a mistake and that's fine. And I also take that approach with, like with my mechanic and the staff around, it's like, don't expect perfection. Just expect the motivation to keep progressing. And we always go backwards and forwards. And as long as the, as long as the general trend is in a positive direction, then that's the goal. That's and then to back to the, the data side, um, some of the, we do a lot of data. One of the main engineers we work with, he's like, we kind of joke because he always says, data is everything. <laughs> and then I'm always like, power is everything. <laughs> I'll give you data, you give me power. <laughs> On the e-bike side. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. But, but some of the data acquisition is, um, it's actually kind of trying to capture what I'm feeling. So they, they're also developing data acquisition systems to try and more more closely capture what I'm feeling. So that's a that's a pretty fun thing to see too. And that's not really that's obviously outside of my wheelhouse, but it's fun to see that the way that I give feedback and the way that I trust my feel is actually helping them to make better data acquisition systems and that helps the whole process. Yeah, I think it's awesome what um, Shimano did in releasing that video series. It shows all the work that goes in from everyone's side, especially mm-hmm. engineers and 
giving names to faces because the end user doesn't see all that. They just mm -hmm. have a bike that works and is incredible, mm -hmm. right? Or a motor that works or, a, you know, a motor that's now the second edition or third or whatever it is. And they go, okay, but it's a little bit more money. Why? Mm -hmm. but if you see what goes in and these guys are really, really passionate, mm -hmm. spending countless hours and months developing, you know, like minute changes, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, and the, the team behind the scenes is super passionate from Yeti and Shimano. Yeah. We have, like, just as an example, there's you've seen Yeti has some special projects out this year, and one of those special projects when we had the first Zoom call to kind of jot down a few ideas and which which direction we wanted to go for that particular product, the main engineer stretch was like, well, I've actually been working on this for a month, like in my own time at home, and he'd already already had the project so far along the like the development process in in the drawing process before we even had the first meeting and that's um like he's working a normal job and then going home and working till midnight on his own special project hoping that one day it'll be used <laughs> so um that's those are the kind of engineers that we get to work with and and that's that's we're all passionate about our roles in the same way and when you can see a group of people like that working together, like just amazing things happen. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, listening mm -hmm. to it just seems like uh, it is fulfilling and you're not going to have a dull moment with all the testing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a new format. It's, you know, you've got to learn. Yeah, what has maybe been the biggest uh, challenge or thing that you have to adapt to going over to, yes, it's e-bikes, but going over to Enduro from this, mammoth you know downhill career yeah that <laughs> i'm not even sure i know which part has been the hardest <laughs> all of it yeah there's so just an overload of information and like just learning how to race an enduro race firstly that's a big thing and i feel like i'm i still feel like a beginner in that sense um downhill racing is like a three minute sprint on a track that I know like the back of my hand and then enduro is kind of you can't ride that same way you have to be looking ahead and you have to be conserving energy in some ways and bike setup and so many things that yeah just trying to learn and then yeah and then you add in the e-bike element to it and the e-bike has like I touched on the auto shift and it has some has a technology in the auto shift called free shift that allows you to shift without pedaling. So that's something that I've kind of wished I had for quite a few years, actually. It's just an idea. And I think the Honda guys did it with the downhill bike, that Honda gearbox kind of had that capability. But it's one thing to have that idea in my head and then have to learn how to use it on the bike has been, that's just one little piece of the bike that I was, just takes me a while to be, remember that it's there and remember to use it and that now I can like just shift whenever I want from around a berm I'm like oh I need I want to change the gear I just hit the shifter and it shifts and it's like the bike has so much going on that that's a lot to learn as well so it shifts the cranks stay stable mm -hmm. but there's a mode that it can shift and obviously not drive, use the drive unit, but just obviously chain, lets the back wheel and the cassette, so the chain moves up and down the cassette. 
Yeah, it's without just you having to move yeah. the cranks. Yeah, so that's kind of the for me it's kind of the it's what allows auto shift to work yeah. so well as you don't have to pedal to complete a shift. So it's just always roughly in the right gear and then I can always manually override it. So if I want it's pretty cool, right? more or less, this but two wheeled mountain bike <laughs> scene yeah. that's yeah. definitely not F1. It's, you know, mm-hmm. there's all sorts of industries that are ahead of us, but we're using all this technology now mm-hmm. and we're really seeing it now in 2023. Yeah. It's pretty impressive actually. Yeah. Think about where you started, which hundred percent I'm going to dig into. Oh yeah. <laughs> When I saw you at your first World Champs in Spain, or maybe my first World Champs, maybe not yours. Yeah, that I mean, was you my had, first. <clears throat> excuse me, pieces of plastic to protect your derailleur. Mm. Um, if you compare those to contrast, that's pretty insane. Yeah, yeah, it's just amazing. It's, I, I love bikes, and to be able to reflect on where we started, and and where we started was actually already a huge progression from the 10 years leading up to that. And now where we are now is just amazing. Like to be riding a bike that has an automatic shifting system and um, a and motor, pedal assist. Pedal assist. Motor. <laughs> yeah. We all love motocross. Yeah. Motors, so, I mean, Headwinds aren't a thing cool. anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and just learning how to use how to use that and then also how to make it better. And um, It's cool to be able to have a career as long as we have to reflect and at that time the bike we were on felt like the best thing ever and then now you feel like there's no way it can get better you know like that's the natural tendency is like well this is the sickest thing ever and but it's nice to be able to reflect and think like I don't know what where it's gonna go I don't know what I don't know (laughs) and I'm excited to be a part of that process so have you had time to reflect on this career Let's maybe like put it into the downhill career, you know, from a young teenager leaving Australia to, with no support of those mm. world champs to factory rides to a World Cup win, lots of podiums, crankworks wins. I mean, you're a proper, I mean, I hope they put you in the Hall of Fame. They haven't mentioned that yet. I think you almost need to stop racing, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> it'll take you a while but yeah. have you actually reflected on that or was it too busy like Halloween and then boom back to like mm. the deep end of this thing yeah I think I actually constantly reflect on that I feel just so thankful for what it's been and what it is still and as a teenager I wanted this is what I wanted to do but you obviously couldn't comprehend what it meant to do it. And and when I signed my first contract with Martin Whiteley in like preparation for the 2001 season, I thought, I remember distinctly thinking, oh, I hope I can do this for 10 years. And that was, yeah, 22 years ago. So, Do you remember that day, yeah. like what it felt like getting the contract? Uh, did it have a dollar figure? Were you too young for Yeah, no, it salary had. Component? Yeah, I had salary and bonuses. and Wow. Um, that was because you were still a junior, right? That was based off one race, essentially. Like, obviously, Martin's a little bit more <laughs> analytical than that, but uh, yeah, that World Championships in Spain was my only international event that I'd done. I'd won national champs at home, and I've been pretty lucky to have a strong Australian contingent in the downhill scene, especially back then. There was like five Aussies in the top ten quite often, so. 
um, I had good guys to race against. And, yeah, signing signing that contract was – I do remember that. I don't remember the exact day, but um, we had actually – it was quite hard for us financially to do what we did. And we didn't – I didn't race much. I raced a couple of times a year. And, and you think that, that was financial – because of the financial burden of travelling to the races and parts and stuff? Yeah, we lived in Cairns, which is like a 40-hour drive to Melbourne, for example, and all the racing is in the southeast in Australia was then. Even now, there's every now and then there's a race in Brisbane, but anyone from the southeast thinks that's north, but that's still 18 hours south of us in a car, so we didn't get out much. <laughs> and we made, we made the decision to spend our money on training. We, I could... I could go to races or do runs at home. I couldn't do both, really. So we just stayed home and trained and raced national champs. And sometimes there was like a national series race the weekend before national champs. And so that'd be my couple of races for the year. Um, just had goals of being overseas, really. So um, to go from that and then went to Spain and had – got a decent result like I got second which is an amazing result but I had an infection in my leg that week and also had food poisoning like got food poisoning the, the morning of the race I woke up really sick and so it was one of the one of the hardest who, ra- races of my life Julian Pumans okay he's a French guy surprisingly yeah. but I mean <laughs> even when I was so that was my first world champs and there was sort of talk of the pits of this junior with no knee pads. I think it was like an old Santa Cruz. Yeah, it was a Santa Cruz it. Super 8. Super 8. So a smaller back wheel, I think, back then. Or something weird. Maybe I had Austin. 24s. Yeah. I was running 24-inch uh, wheels. you had like yeah. plastic makeshift guards, which I can relate to because in South Africa you couldn't get parts. So mm-hmm. we would make chain guides or tensioners out of hose pipes, whatever, whatever we get our hands on. So I could totally relate because mm. for other people from Europe, this was like, who is this oddball, you know, mm-hmm. with this plastic thing protecting his derailleur? But that was like, hey, you know, if I can keep this derailleur for a few months, like, then mm. I can do more training runs. Yeah. Um, so you, it was interesting, but... And finish races this, too. Yeah, finish races. And mm. there was this raw speed that you had. And I think Martin would have been hearing it through the Aussie thing. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, there's this kid in Australia doing 100 runs a day, mm-hmm. whatever it is. So that's interesting because you could either go race more to get experience, but you guys opted for sort of more bike time, mm-hmm. more skill acquisition, which is an interesting mm-hmm. way to do it. And then you sort of catch up the under the clock. But, I mean, you've been racing BMX mm-hmm. as well as a youngster. So, like, did your dad verbalize some of the stuff to you? Or is it just like, hey, we're not going to the race, but don't worry, I'm going to drive you for as many runs as you can handle yeah i think he did talk about some of that stuff not all of it but it's all kind of it's hard to clearly remember when you're a kid you know what the plan was but i do remember that being the plan of just bike time dad really has always believed in bike time and i kind of always say if you want to get good at playing the violin you play the violin so it's, yeah, um, and he definitely instilled mm-hmm. it in you. I mean, he was quite hard on you guys, but I think you guys appreciate that. Like, look where you and Tracy mm-hmm. are. Yeah, and I don't... Yeah, he was probably hard on us. I don't really look at it that way, though. Like, it was always our choice. 
he never it was never like we had to do it or it didn't feel like I never felt like I was doing it for him yeah um but basically I'm the oldest of four kids and we we lived on a tight budget and mum and dad put everything into us kids and so if we're gonna if we're gonna yeah if we're gonna make that well if we're gonna make that investment or then we're gonna put an effort in you know yeah I can relate because I don't know if I've shared this like I had some butted heads a bit with my my late dad here and there with those teenage years. Mm -hmm. But the biggest thing he ever said was like, you guys have more talent in your little pinky than I have in my whole body. Mm -hmm. Don't waste it. And he was the same. Like I never, I didn't have to do anything for him. Whether I got last or first, it didn't Mm -hmm. matter. As long as he saw that we were putting effort in Mm -hmm. and appreciating what he was Mm -hmm. trying to do. He never cared for the results. It was just Mm -hmm. like, if I pissed around and didn't ride my bike or... Yeah. Through a bike or something stupid. Yeah. You know, then it was like, hey, we're not going to the next race. Oh, I would never a, throw a bike. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> we would have got it yeah. back. Well, exactly. Not in front of him. No. But he would catch wind and yeah. it would be like, so maybe it is similar. Like, he just instilled, like, hey, if we're going to do this, do it mm. properly, whether you win or lose. Mm-hmm. Don't waste what we're putting in you. Is that maybe a better reflection of that, those moments? Yeah, for sure. It really, and dad, um, Dad is very talented, actually, and just never got the opportunity himself to pursue anything like that. He's very mechanically minded, so that's the training that we did was all based on his passion for engines and mechanics generally. Um, Yeah, which one of the simple things, philosophies that he had was, um, he said, whoever's engine revs the hardest wins in motor racing. So he trained me for leg speed and in BMX. I think I maxed out at 300 revs one day on cadence, you know, on a zero resistance sprint bike that dad built a stationary bike for me that was, he was like, tried to copy where I stood in the sprint position on the track and built the bike accordingly. And I went road riding on my BMX with a seat. He made the seat and put, he put me sat in the, sprinting position so everything i did was in that position and just some dad is not like officially educated but some of those things i reflect on and think that's just genius really yeah, like, like ahead of its time without yeah. the internet and any data speaking of data to yeah. go off no. he just kind of reverse engineered what the end product used to look like into your training yeah that's that's epic yeah yeah it's just brilliant and that like and not just that like he trained me very well and very specific to me and my strengths and then I also watched him train Tracy and Tracy's a completely different rider to me and he did an amazing job with her and had to like think about different he had to look at her completely differently she's a woman and she's the body's different strengths are different weaknesses are different and yeah yeah, it's just I'm really thankful to have been able to work with that. Yeah, and what was the world record? Well, it is a world record <laughs> of the, forget the down or name, but in Cairns. I rode the track, really awesome. Yeah, um, Karanda. Karanda. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, apparently it hasn't changed that much. So going back in time, that would have been quite a gnarly track mm-hmm. on the bikes of yesteryear. How many runs in one day? We did 41 runs. In one day, 
And it was That's back then. It's minutes. a bit shorter now, but it was four and a half minutes then. And I, I fast. I timed all the runs. All the runs were within two seconds, I think, two or three seconds. And the fastest run was the fortieth. So just kind of lapped out all day. And, and you ate in the car, drank in the car. Yeah, we made lunch. I mean, we kind of all often made lunch for the cars a bit it was cheaper but yeah that was I mean that wasn't what we did for training necessarily but the record before that was 25 and one of my buddies one of my close friends Miles Mead he did 21 one weekend and I was like that day we went out I'd been training pretty hard and I was we were pretty fit and um I went out with the goal of doing 30 that day and we got to about 25 and I was like, I'm feeling pretty good. Like, let's just see how many we can do. And basically went from dark till dark. And Any crashes? No, no crashes. But I had another buddy with me and he got a flat one run. And that's why the number came to 41 actually because I had done 40. And when he flatted in the middle of the day, we went and did a run while he fixed the flat. And... <laughs> That's just the way Dad is. He doesn't hang around. Like if you if you're gonna take time fixing something, we're gonna go do runs while you're doing it. <laughs> and um, we got to I'd done forty and Shane had done thirty nine, and I was like, you can't stop at thirty nine. We've no. got to go again. <laughs> you're, not, you're not hanging yeah. around yeah. at thirty nine. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And uh, so you go over to that first world champs. I mean, I vividly, I for being so long ago, I remember sort of more of that than I do of some other world champs. Do you have similar memories? Minus the negative food poisoning and mm. other issues, but rocking up there, training, being in a foreign country. Yeah, I mean, it was obviously very eye-opening. <laughs> Come from homeschooling and working on a banana farm and just road riding and doing runs to, yeah, I traveled over there by myself. Spent a night in Tokyo on the way. Spent a night in Madrid on the like along the way, and ended up yeah in southern Spain there. And and that's the year you turned sixteen. You would have that would have been your first year junior, or however we call it, eh? Yeah, I was. Um, it was the year I turned seventeen. Okay. So yeah, yeah, first year junior. Yeah, first year junior. Back then you could oh, get I permission could, yeah, you could, to I do. Went, I was one yeah. year younger, but but it stopped. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I was actually in June that year because it was, um, an Olympic, Olympic year. year and, yeah. Yeah. And just, I hadn't seen mountains like that. The Sierra Nevada's up like high alpine above tree line altitude. I'd never seen altitude, obviously in a foreign country, as you say. And then also it's funny that everybody remembers that I was there with no pads because, I remember getting there and thinking everyone looked so weird wearing all the body armor and everything. Like I'd never seen body armor before because <laughs> in Cairns, nobody ran past. <laughs> like we just rode and it was, I mean, some maybe it's too hot or whatever. Like, but yeah, nobody at home wore pads. <laughs> I'd never seen them before. <laughs> so I didn't come from BMX. No one in BMX wore pads either. You just like, as long as you had long pants and shirt they, yeah but you had shorts yeah. and no knee pads yeah uh, yeah which for me wasn't strange at the time <laughs> Fair and then like these guys are in full Danese body armor suits look like but Arnold Schwarzenegger and Terminator yeah. yeah that was like during that era yeah, yeah. full Danese was like you either wore nothing yeah or you wore that yeah 
So I was equally blown away by what I was seeing to what everybody there was like, what's this kid doing? So I, I do recommend wearing knee pads. To, so. <laughs> you finally yeah. have a bit of experience, have you? Yeah. Now, you've been pretty solid at that. Jared Graves yeah. seems to not always wear knee pads, but that's like maybe in slaloms and stuff like that. Um, so that just kind of is the beginning of this career. And the very next mm. year, you get picked up by Global Racing. Yeah. Mon Whiteley. Excuse me. <clears throat> Messing up this audio. I have to do some editing. And that team at the time was uh, incredible. I mean, they had the likes of Missy Jovi. Greg was on it. Sean mm -hmm. McCarroll. Um, it was basically that he, his concept was getting the best riders from around the world in mm -hmm. one team. From different continents, I guess, maybe. That's a yeah. bigger thing. Um, but he put you on, still as a junior, but you were going to go race. Yeah, there wasn't a junior carry. It was elite mm -hmm. racing for you. Yeah. Yeah, we... It was just World Cup. You went and raced the World Cup. There wasn't yeah, a category. It should be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and just to roll back a little bit on that, after Spain, when I went home, it's kind of a long story, but my bike never showed up for a few months, and we just thought I'd lost my bike. And we essentially, the way my memory, <laughs> the way I remember it is we decided not to race anymore because – Honestly. Couldn't afford it. We'd, we'd put everything into it, you know. and To get you to Spain yeah. and all the Yeah, and, and someone, I had a sponsor back then that paid for the flight, but then that became a big, yeah, that became a big headache. And anyway, thought the bike was gone. There's no reasonable way for us to replace it. And so, we'd, yeah, it was time to go and get educated or get a job or something, you know. And And then it was kind of after that that, we got a call from Martin later on in the year and offered, yeah, offered a ride and that was that was pretty close, really. Like <laughs> to retire, I'd actually the like third time, yeah. Retire, but I mean, Tracy's yeah. had similar, like retiring before your career even took off, and she had that period mm. as well. Yeah, what for Trace, it was time? like it was a similar thing for Trace. No support. I mean, not that I. It's not fair to say that there was no support for me. There was just I was young and I hadn't come yet, but. Mm. For Trace, she finished the 07 season with third overall in the World Cup, third at World Champs as a privateer and couldn't get enough support to do the racing the next year. So she just went and got a job, essentially. Yeah. And and it's getting better now, but it's still, um, yeah, still not easy. I mean, it was a long time ago, but do you remember mm. what, did you start part-time work? Did you... Well, your school, like, what was it like then? Well, I was working full time from just before I turned fourteen, anyway. So I was, I hadn't quit my job. I went and did the race, and then went back to work. So it was, I was working anyway, and that didn't really, nothing really changed in that sense. Yeah, I was maybe not focused on training so much after worlds, or I had actually had like tendonitis in one of my knees that year and from just from doing so many road miles I used to ride to work every day I was about 30 k's each way to work and ride to work and work all day and then ride home and then do runs on the weekend and train pretty hard really and after worlds I don't really remember clearly but I don't think I was training as hard 
necessarily and yeah everything was kind of up in the air and then got a call from Martin that took off and then got on like kind of the biggest most exciting up and coming team that on the circuit which was just a huge blessing and and to learn from from Martin and from Missy and Monk Monk Dog was on there and uh, Sean Sean McCarroll was from Cairns as well that was a great connection for me to have someone from home there and yeah and then like Cesar Rojo who's obviously he's like one of the best engineering firms in the industry now and um yeah it was an awesome team what uh yeah. speaking of fish out of water what was that first training camp like or <laughs> yeah race like you yeah. said you you're lining up or, or being teammates with someone like Missy Jervy, which was an incredible character of, mm. our, of our industry, or the likes of these racers have been racing World Cups. What was that like coming out of banana plantations mm. and, and cans? Yeah, yeah, that was a huge culture shock, obviously. <laughs> coming from being homeschooled and working by myself on a banana farm to hanging out with Missy and Monk and <laughs> all those guys. And not just Martin did a great job of mixing like like the concept was having someone from each continent basically and so you got there's a couple of Japanese guys in Brazil and Spain and Missy obviously is like full New Yorker you know and it's a lot of different cultures and yeah that was yeah my eyes were just wide open the whole time <laughs> like and but it was awesome I I obviously knew who Missy was from watching the races on TV and. Um, it was, she was just really helped me out a lot right from the beginning. And, um, she's crazy and like all the craziness is true, but she's also extremely professional and worked really hard. And she was a great example and great help to me. But you guys came out swinging. Greg was on the team as well. Mm -hmm. Also a youngster, maybe not a junior as we said, he's like two years older than you. Mm -hmm. I think Sea Otter, like you guys, did you win the slalom? Sea Otter. Like, sea Otter. So swinging yeah. in the beginning, you and Greg, like at the World Cups as well. Yeah. Sea Otter were in the top 10 in the downhill, and slalom, I came up against Lopes, and I beat him in the first heat by like a tenth of a second. And he got me in the second heat by a tenth of a second or something, and he advanced, but it was like. I couldn't even believe I was in the gate next to Brian Lopes. Like, this guy's a legend, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and and then to be, like, still next to him at the finish, I was like, no way. And <laughs> um, Yeah, that was just a crazy experience. And then, then Big Bear was when we got, like, I won the slalom and Greg got second. And then I won the downhill and Greg was, like, third or something. So, yeah, just two new kids. People knew Greg a little bit more because he'd been racing in Europe, but um, yeah, he was on Animal was still, Orange before. Yeah, so, yeah, but still like a partial season, and yeah, this was our first real season, and actually kind of remember feeling a bit bad for Greg because that big bear downhill I won and he got third or something, and then the next race was the first World Cup in Maribor, and I got sixth, like just off the podium which was a big bummer and I was pretty disappointed but looking back it was a pretty sick result for your first my first World Cup and I was junior racing in elite and but anyway I was sixth Greg was seventh then uh 
the next weekend I was seventh and Greg was eighth. And then the next weekend I was third. I got my first podium in the Grouse Mountain. Season. I was third and Greg was fourth. It was like every weekend I beat him by one place. It was just like a tenth of a second or whatever, you know. And I was like, this guy's going to hate me. <laughs> yeah, he's like this damn junior yeah. from Australia with no knee pads. Yeah. Keep squeaking. But, I mean, that's 2001. So that's the year. Yeah, so. Because then he went on to win Caprun. I injured my knee in Japan. Yes. And then Greg yeah, won Caprun next. That, and Greg went on to win the overall, so. Jeez, yeah, it was that's a crazy yeah. history, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty. It was just awesome. Turn up and I couldn't even believe I was doing it. I was traveling, which I wanted to do, and I was meeting all my heroes and including Greg. Like, I'd, Greg and I are similar age, and I could see being competitive with each other, maybe. But I didn't really feel. Like, I don't remember feeling that way. I was always like trying to win stuff and that, but. I was just stoked to be on the team with him and all the other guys on the team and doing this amazing sport. <laughs> How factory was that team? I mean, it was what chefs, or engineers, mechanics. Yeah, it was everything. Nine riders. Nine riders, nine and nine staff, and I actually got in trouble for trying to help work on my bike <laughs> it was like no you don't that's not your job you just stop trying to wash the bike yeah yeah go rest yeah and i still to this day i'd quite enjoy hanging out with the mechanics and mm. it's like i enjoy the mechanical side which probably comes from my dad as well a bit we've made a lot of stuff ourselves in the shed and still doing that <laughs> i got a ducati a couple of years ago and someone had crashed it it was during covid and couldn't get parts, so I just made a few parts for it, and so we st still a bit of that going on in the shed at home. But um, yeah, I had to learn that my role is super important, and it's important to, for me to focus on that. And and the mechanics are going to do a great job of my bike, and I need to leave them alone. <laughs> yeah. How uh, how important are they, and how unappreciated are they? You think the mechanics are incredibly important. And everybody on the team, the team managers, um, the the soigneurs, are just there's so much work that goes on behind the scenes, and and that's um, as you can see with the privateers, it's really difficult to come over to a foreign country, and and it's unfortunately essentially it's just the European Cup, it's not really a World Cup. So for most people like yourself, or like from South Africa, Australia, even the US, it's it's a huge culture shock to come over to Europe. And so to have that support of a factory team behind you is just so valuable. Um, not to say it can't be done as a privateer, but I don't think it's sustainable long-term. And also it, it does make it a bit more difficult. Um, the mechanic rider relationship is something that's pretty interesting because you, you see the best and worst of each other or mostly the mechanic sees the worst of me <laughs> and but it's really important to build a good relationship with your mechanic and that that way when you come in the pits and you're having a bad day the mechanic doesn't necessarily take it personally <laughs> they're just the first ones that get your frustration or whatever and um yeah that's a i'm still quite close friends i would say with most of the guys that i've worked with most of the mechanics i've worked with because because you go through that kind of high emotion, high stress, high pressure job together and that forms quite a close bond. Yeah, I mean, they're 
part-time psychologists as well um, mm-hmm. at the top of the hill if they say the wrong thing at the wrong time mm-hmm. or sometimes they need to maybe say something mm-hmm. once they learn their rider yeah they can be really really beneficial even mm-hmm. on that like mental side but yeah you're right they they're the unsung heroes mm-hmm. everyone at these races that's not racing like the people that put up the pits or the support mm-hmm. from shimano you know yeah. without them like your job is a lot more difficult mm-hmm. Yeah, and a good mechanic, like one story I had with Terry when I was on GT a few years ago, I had a qualifying run, I was in Bromont in Canada and qualified about 19th or something like that. It was reasonable, but it was like behind the pace that I was on at that time and Terry's like, you need to relax. (laughs) And so that night he took me out for dinner and we split a bottle of wine together and it's like complete opposite to what you'd think the preparation should be for a race but then the next day I ended up getting sixth or something I think and he was just as you say that psychology aspect it's cool that he spotted that yeah he's like you're he more just tense like, than when you ride well you know like yeah you're not in your your zone yeah like a better term. yeah and that's that's one of the beautiful things about downhill as well as obviously you've all you got to be top performing athletes and but the mental side of it's huge as well because it's such a, I mean, it's the pinnacle of what you can do racing a mountain bike, really, that speed and the timing and skill and technology in the bike and all that stuff. And so you've got to be at your top physical condition, but that's not the only piece. So when we say mental, I mean, everyone can understand, okay, it's in the mind, it's away from the skill, the bike setup you just mentioned. It's quite a broad term. Mm-hmm. Like if we break down what a good mental side looks like for downhill, what does that look like? You know, like <laughs> how does mechanic perform or what sets Greg apart, you know? What, mm-hmm. what is that? Well, first off, that's completely different for every rider. So good luck pinning that one down. <laughs> true, very true. But yeah, that's – I'm actually – I enjoy that side of it and trying to figure out that side of it for other riders and part of part of my role with within the Yeti organization is to kind of be there for younger riders and to help with that sort of stuff and I find that for me when I'm struggling with something if I'm struggling with bike setup or whatever I try to just take myself back to a time when I'm at home, maybe quite often it's like on a, a race that's just a complete mess. It's dumping rain or it's snowing or whatever. Everything's just a, a massacre. <laughs> and I think if I was at home with my buddies, I'd be having the best time in my life. And just to be able to put myself in that zone and then just go out and into practice or my race run with that mindset and knowing that you've done all the work, like – We've ridden so much, we've trained so much, we've put all we can into bike setup and testing and development and so you're not going to forget it all just because it rained last night, you know. And being able to get yourself into that that kind of home mindset of just riding with your buddies and your skill is there regardless and you can you can only handicap it by stressing and that's... Um, as I said before, that's really different for each rider. So from 
like looking at it from a mentor's perspective, I find that really the first step is to build a relationship with a writer so that I can learn who they are and how they work, how they think. And some people are like super analytical and they need that to feel good on the bike. And other people are like not analytical at all and they need to just let go of everything and, and ride or don't even think about riding, just roll in the start and be in the moment. So it's really fun to think. That's something I love about what we do is it's not like you do these 10 things and you'll go fast. It's a lot more, there's a lot more art to it than that. Yeah, it's fascinating. It just makes me think like if you could go back in time with a lot of these lessons you've learned, Mm-hmm. But you can't, you know, you've got no mm-hmm. regrets and that's the part of, of learning so that you've got this experience. But how often do you think we were back in the day riding and you're struggling on a section or struggling on the track, having a terrible week? But if someone could just shake you and say, if you're having a terrible week or and you're like a top five rider in the world, do you not think everyone else is feeling this way? So you think you're the only one feeling bad on a section mm-hmm. or the only one having a bad week. But I think it's about reflecting, going, everyone's struggling. This mm-hmm. is normal. But what you said is brilliant. Easy said and done. But go back to your subconscious. Go mm-hmm. back to like trusting the process or trusting your mm-hmm. riding. And I think that's where some of the top riders are at a better level. On these bad weeks, they trust that mm-hmm. subconsciously their skill will take care of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've done all the prep. So they maybe manage the stress levels better going into the final run to accept yeah. the outcome. You know, And mm-hmm. all they can do is control the first turn or, you know, mm-hmm. you know, visualizing the first few turns and then hopefully the body takes over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and something I've heard, um, a quote I've heard from Greg is, if you can't switch off, you can't switch on. And that's quite mm-hmm. accurate as well. Being yeah. able to, being able to help, like allow yourself to switch off until you need to switch on. And then you're not like, laying in bed at night stressing or you're not walking like you might have a day off leading into a race week and you're out doing taking the cable car to the top of the mountains like just in the context that we're in here in the Dolomites and if you spend that whole day stressing about the race then you're not getting any rest yeah and being able to just yeah mental energy and um so that's a and all all riders do that differently. Some guys want to party, some some want to go fishing or whatever it is and everything in between, you know. Um, but but that's an important thing. And I think for me it's like from a coaching perspective, it's getting to know the rider that I'm trying to help and personally it's trying to get to know me. And that, that's been a really important thing for me is who am I, what, what makes me tick, how do I work? where how does my mind work the best and in what conditions and how do I get rest mentally that's um, that's super important yeah you can see the youngsters especially those youngsters <laughs> that go to world champs for the first time and never yeah. warmed up before a race before I almost think then keep it that way better off you not. have time <laughs> yeah. to learn that your new process but if you're looking outwards at everyone else mm-hmm. so Fabian <clears throat> Burrell would visualize and do his things at the top of the track but that's not a McKenna thing Mm-mm. so you've never done that you haven't tested it, you're like, man, it just doesn't seem like me. Cool. It's not mm-hmm. wrong or right. Yeah. And some guys need to be joking at the top. Maybe they're extroverted. I was one of those guys. Mm-hmm. If I went too internal and too quiet, people 
would be like, oh, he's focusing, but it actually wasn't a good thing for me. Mm-hmm. And I've got a famous story of Oscar. I don't know if I ever told you. And um, he obviously noticed this throughout the season, needed to have fun, but this is before final. Mm-hmm. Starts telling me a joke, but now he's going to translate it from <laughs> Spanish in his head to English. So I literally knew what he was doing. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, he's keeping it lighthearted. This is great. Eventually I said, Oscar, I got, you've got to wrap this joke up. I literally need to go to the start line. Yeah. And we both laughed because we knew what he was trying to do and it worked. Like, mm-hmm. That's what I needed. But you have to figure out what you need. Mm-hmm. And that's probably one of the hardest things is to find what works for you and then sort of stick to that process, which I think takes the stress down. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm ticking these boxes to the best of my abilities and that's kind of the zone I need to get in and hopefully mm-hmm. the rest takes care of itself. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Yeah, as I keep saying, that's part of what I just love about what we do is that there's not a single way to do it. There's so many different ways to do it that work. If you look at the top 20 guys in the Downhill World Cup, they're all completely different, different body types, different training, different bikes, different cultures. They've all grown up in different families. Their minds work completely different and and they're all separated by three seconds. <laughs> and it's like, that's just a beautiful thing. Yeah, it's actually unreal. We were mm. talking with Eddie. I was like, it can make a Netflix. I think it could go a little bit more mainstream. Mm-hmm. It is a super, super unique sport, mixing <laughs> from physical to bike setup to different tracks to different body types. And mm-hmm. there's no cookie cutter thing, you know? Yeah. Like not, not one size will fit anyone, you know? I do... I do believe in our in the sport of downhill as being one of the most amazing sports in the world. And it's young and early on it had a reputation of just being crazy guys and and I still get that a lot, like, what do you do? Oh, you race mountain bikes, oh you're crazy and it's like, Well, I've been doing this for more than twenty years and the crazy guys don't last very long. No. <laughs> for sure it's a risk risky sport and things can happen and I'm aware of that, but um, we're actually all quite calculated and quite um, self-aware, I would say. And that's uh, yeah, that's just such a cool thing about the sport. Yeah, there are some crashes happening in restaurants, but mm. which that sort of risk has gone up. Uh, I actually mm-hmm. want to get your thoughts on that, but it it, it is like it's quite a controlled risk. Mm-hmm. Like you know where every drop is and every pebble, and you normally know your speed you're going to commit to which you've hopefully done in practice mm-hmm. like it is a very calculated sport accidents happen mm-hmm. mistakes happen track yeah. can change but do you think the risk level in race runs has gone up like it seems back in the day a really focused planned out run could land you on the podium mm-hmm. and even that could maybe get you the win but mm-hmm. now i mean there's just more competition tracks i guess in theory are getting a bit quicker and shorter so times are coming closer, so people are sort of willing to risk more. You know, these sort mm-hmm. of... Amri is a calculated, planned guy, but some of the runs, you know, from a year or two look pretty mm-hmm. pretty aggressive. Yeah. And even Greg speaking about it, I think he's aware, like, a calculated Greg Menor 95% run could win a race back in the day. Mm-hmm. I don't think so anymore. Yeah, and Greg's a great example because back in, like, most of his career, you would... It was shocking if you saw him make a mistake. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. the last couple of years, he's been riding a bit ragged. Like, 
which has been fun to see, but he's like pushing that limit of uh, where he's comfortable to be a little bit. And um, yeah, it's interesting. Like some also think about Loic, who looks so dialed so much, but he also makes quite big mistakes sometimes as well. So it's an inter- that's just a really interesting question. And I feel like at certain times we have like a period where people are making a few more mistakes and then it gets reined in again and then it gets a bit more people push again and it's kind of like like when Sam blew everyone's doors off back in the day it was like he changed the way that we rode and then everyone learnt from him and then then it happened again with Aaron and yeah, he, sure. he like changed the way the sport was approached and then everyone learnt from him and um, now all the Frenchies basically and Amory's one of those guys but with Amory, Loris, Loic, all like that whole group of French guys, they're all different riders and they're all pushing the sport quite far and now, I mean, yeah, the field's so deep now but <laughs> you got Finn and uh, Kolb who just won last weekend and um, yeah, it's an exciting, it's an exciting time to be watching the sport but um and in, people always talk about how impressive Greg is and he is the greatest of all time and all that. And when I look and think of all those steps that the sport's taken and and the way that those kind of exciting riders come and lifted the game, it is really impressive to see the way Greg took on all those lessons in each in each period and stepped up and kept winning. Let's take a quick break from this episode to hear from one of our awesome sponsors. Without them, this podcast wouldn't be possible. During my racing years and even now, I take my health and nutrition pretty seriously, I must say. It was so difficult though to stick to a routine and to remember to take all those necessary supplements. Then I found AG1. I'm so excited to partner with them personally and for this podcast. I actually started taking AG1 long before this partnership even came about. Now you might ask, What is this stuff? Think of AG1 as your all-in-one health insurance. I know I do. I have never been one for taking a million different supplements or vitamins. So this is the perfect all-in-one solution. Honestly, I actually look forward to taking it. I do it first thing in the morning. I feel more alert and focused and I know I'm taking care of my body and health. I feel energized to get my day going. Covering my nutritional basis for the day literally couldn't be easier. And that's why I trust AG1. I just mix one small scoop with water and drink it first thing each morning as I said and then I'm done. So check this out. With that one scoop of AG1 I've been talking about, you're absorbing, listen to this, 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced ingredients, probiotics and adaptogens to help start your day right. This is a special blend of ingredients that supports your gut health, nervous system, immune system recovery and helps enhance your focus. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and none of that nasty chemical, artificial anything, all while still tasting good. Now let's all be honest with each other. We all know we don't eat enough vegetables or consume the healthiest meals some of the time, especially when we get busy. We all want something quick and easy which will help us in life. AG1 supports better sleep quality recovery, mental clarity and alertness. 
Now, I don't care what you do in life. I think we can all agree this is super important. AG1 is trusted by so many professional athletes and health experts. If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com forward slash moving the needle. That's again drinkag1.com forward slash moving the needle to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. The link will be in the show notes as well. Thanks to our episode sponsor, ODI. Now I've been on these and only these grips for well over 20 years. How cool is that? I clearly remember we couldn't even get them in South Africa back in the day when I was a junior. The minute I got my hands on a pair of these lock-on grips, I never looked back. They are the original lock-on. They have an incredible range of options out there. But I want to tell you a little bit about something new they're offering. Drawing on over 40 years of experience of producing performance-driven grips and feedback from the extensive network of top riders across the globe, the Reflex Grip have been engineered to reduce impacts and vibration being passed onto the rider's hands to allow you to ride more with less pain and fatigue. Reflex grips are the latest innovation in impact dampening to keep you riding longer and farther as they've been specifically engineered to reduce vibration, like having suspension for your hands without compromising control. They use their propriety grip compound with its superior impact damping properties and couple this with responsive ribbed padding that actively flexes under your hands to reduce impacts and torsional forces. Now those are some fancy words, but let me tell you, this just really is going to help you with less fatigue, less pain, you're gonna be able to ride longer. So what's not to like about that? Not to mention their version 2.1 lock-on grip system gives you the most reliable, slip-free grip performance available. Hey, if you wanna learn more, head over to odigrips.com or pop into your nearest retailer. And one last thing before you guys go, if you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend. Make sure you subscribe. Leave us hopefully a five-star rating and review. I read all those reviews. It's awesome getting them. If you got any feedback, you want to send me a message, I get all those messages. I try to respond to them all. I really appreciate it. It's been a fun journey so far. So until the next one, stay well.